We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length, members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Tanya Mosley, the host of NPR San Francisco station KQED's new podcast, Truth Be Told, an advice show by and for people of color. Tanya also serves as KQED's Silicon Valley bureau chief. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Daniel. I'm so excited. It's been a while since I had somebody on the show who is also an advice columnist. <laughs> and um, I feel very, like, uh, like just supercharged. Oh, well, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be so much fun. I am so looking forward to it, especially because we got a couple that feel like they could have been um, subplots on Riverdale this season. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, whoa. Yeah. There's some heavy stuff this week. Yeah, yeah. This first one especially is um, uh, very, like, you know, cinematic, which is exciting for us, hard for the letter writer, but again, exciting for us. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to hear you break it down. Uh, Then I guess I will be the one to read it. The subject uh, of the first letter is sibling regret. Dear Prudence, my stepsister, Jane, came to live with us when she was 15 after her mom got very sick. We were the same age and forced to share a room. Jane acted out, and I was her personal punching bag. She would destroy my belongings, spread rumors about me, stole my homework. She constantly got in trouble at school and was caught shoplifting twice. She also fought with my parents a lot. One day, I overheard my stepdad saying that if Jane got in trouble one more time, he would be sending her out of state to a, quote, special school. His family was coming to visit, so I hatched a plan to get rid of Jane. I waited until all the adults were downstairs— and I went through their purses, coats, and bags. I stole money and jewelry and planted it in Jane's backpack. When the thefts were discovered, Jane was blamed. She insisted that she didn't do it and that it had to be either my younger brothers or me. I had never been in trouble before, and no one suspected the truth. My stepdad sent Jane away. The school didn't work, and Jane disappeared into drugs. She missed her own mother's funeral last year. I was happy about it at first, but now, as an adult, I realized that Jane was just a kid lashing out. 
I can't remember her ever doing drugs when she lived with us. I feel guilty, and I wonder if my act is part of what pushed Jane down a darker road. I am terrified of telling my parents and having them hate me. I know that my stepdad feels guilt over Jane, and various relatives have mentioned those thefts that day as the point of no return. What should I do? Is there anything I can do? I have never done anything else like that before or since in my life. Man, you probably could hear me sighing all the way through this. This is hard. This is hard. Um, There are a couple of things that come to mind for me. Um, I want to acknowledge first that what she did, and she knows what she did, was a pretty horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And she feels a lot of guilt about it as an adult. Mm -hmm. And there are things that we do in our adolescence and our, our teenage years that we look back on and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, as an adult, I would never do something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, acknowledging that she has those feelings, um, I think now the next step, um, I'll just go right into what I think. Yeah. So um, she has no relationship with Jane right now. Mm-hmm. She feels a lot of guilt, and I think that she needs to go to her parents and tell them what she has done. Mm-hmm. And I think she needs to then find Jane, if she can, and tell her. Mm-hmm. There is no way to know that um, what happened changed the trajectory of Jane, Jane's life. We don't know that. There's no way to ever know that if this this incident is what the defining moment that then made Jane go off into drugs Um We also don't know if there were lots of things that she didn't know as a young person that her parents were already in motion to send Jane to a school. Even though she had overheard her parents say that, that might have already been in motion. Um, So sometimes we look back on on the past and say, oh, okay, it's because I did this one thing that this other thing had happened. But by acknowledging and telling her parents that she did this, she gives her parents a chance to rectify things with Jane. Mm-hmm. And she gives her parents the opening to be able to contact Jane. And she also needs to tell Jane, just as a human being, like, I'm sorry for what I did to you. Yeah. I, I, I th- I'm with you on that one. I think that that's also the right thing to do here. Um, and I think part of what is hard, as you say, is now that the letter writer is starting to experience a real sense of, wow, what I did was not just like uh, a little messed up. It was really, really wrong. And I want to try to make it right. There's also this fear of, is it is it therefore then all my fault? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that's helpful to remember here is that while what you did was wrong, you were also a child yourself. Um, and you had, it sounds like, kind of a limited uh, sense of what you could ask your parents for. Like, it doesn't sound like you were able to tell them, like, Jane is destroying my stuff mm. or spreading rumors about me mm-hmm. and I need help. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's not to say, therefore, you just did what you had to do. Don't worry about it. Move on with your life. But um, I, I I would encourage you, as you allow yourself to experience the guilt and remorse that I think is appropriate for what you did, to not take on so much guilt and remorse that mm-hmm. you just say, therefore, I was a monster. I am an irredeemable person. If I admit this, basically, Jane's unhappy life is my entire fault. That's right. Um, and so, you know, if you are able to see a therapist before you talk to your parents, that might be helpful. Mm. Um, just so you can kind of figure out how do you want to bring it up. If it were me, I think I would say, you know, I have overheard you two talking sometimes about the regret that you feel about sending Jane away. Um, and something's been on my mind that I've wanted to share with you, but I felt ashamed about it. Um, and that's that I had overheard you talking about that. I did not know how to tell you the ways in which I felt targeted or or hurt by her. I just wanted her gone, and I did steal those things, and I blamed her for it. And I know that that was wrong, and I'm, I want to do what I can to try to 
you know, I, I don't want to say to make it right because there's just a limit to how much you can yep. fix. Um, but to at least say, I want to take responsibility for it and I want to apologize. Yeah. And let's be real. It's going to be a hard conversation either way. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you can sugarcoat this or present it to them where they're not going to be shocked by it. And perhaps they're, you you don't know what the outcome will be. But I really feel like she owes it to her parents and she owes it to Jane. Right. She really owes it to Jane. And she's going to live with the guilt of it, whether or not she... Um, just let everyone know. So mm-hmm. she might as well let everyone know. And there may be something that can come out of it where the parents can reconcile their relationship with her, with Jane. Or um, Jane can feel a sense of like, okay, I feel I feel like now people understand when I told them I didn't do this, mm-hmm. I really didn't do it. And yeah. now, you know, there's, I mean, it's going to be hard either way. Yeah. But she's got to do it. And, and I think that that's a good point too, because if, if you and your parents kind of feel like if we acknowledge this or if we look back at the past and think, I regret this, I shouldn't have done this, I, I wish I didn't, um, it'll feel like now what we have to do is to try to fix Jane's life. Mm. And I think it's just going to be really good to say, all I can take responsibility for is what I did. Yeah, I can't help her um uh, with you know there were a lot of other things going on in Jane's life at this time that were not your fault um all you can do is is try to make amends for this one thing that you did so i, I think one of the things that should give you some hope is that your parents right now are trying to work through their own guilt yeah. and again that doesn't you know they were also in a really difficult situation um I, I don't think what they did was right but i also understand that they probably felt overwhelmed and ill-equipped to handle a kid who was that troubled mm-hmm. um and and so I, I think there's reason to believe if you share this with them, while they will be sad and disappointed, they will not say, now you're the monster. We did nothing wrong. It's all your fault either. Yeah. Um, and again, if you can't get a hold of Jane, um, if if you say, I, I would like to apologize for something that I did to you, and she says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I think you need to respect that. And then, then your next kind of um, emotional work ahead of you will be to figure out how can I try to... Um, like have a sort of like living amends where I can't offer that to her directly, but where I could try to provide um, better help or resources for other kids struggling in similar situations. That's really good. Yeah, that is really good. And that's really good to acknowledge that like Jane may not want to have anything to do with you. Right. Yeah. Because part of what I think there's always like um, when you want to apologize or to try to make amends, there's always the kind of shadow version of what you want to do, which is I want Jane to forgive me and tell me I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good goal. That that's won't right. lead you down the right path. That's right. Um, but if you say, if she's angry with me and all that happens is I tell her I did it and that it was wrong and I'm sorry. And she says, you're right. It was wrong. I hate you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't uh, uh, I can't control that. I can't stop that. All I need to do is is own up to what I did. You know what? It's not written in this letter, but there could very well be a chance that Jane already knows this. I mean, they're kids. She yeah. knows she didn't put this money in these in her, you know, backpack. Mm-hmm. So she probably knows there's one of two people who did it, her or her brother, right. you know? Right. And it, it may very well, again, even if she's not immediately just, thank you for telling me That's I feel right. great now, it, it will be meaningful for her to hear um you were telling the truth. I'm sorry. I hurt you. That was wrong. Exactly. Um, and then again, if 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 there's still a lot of complicated feelings for you afterwards, if you feel like I want to try to do other things in my life to try to, um, you know, 
put myself in some version of that same situation and, and make a different choice, um, then it would be good to find some organizations that help and support kids who are going through difficult times and to figure out, can I volunteer? Can I donate money? Um, can I do some office work to help them around? Because um, that will be, I think, a useful outlet for some of those feelings of guilt that yeah. don't involve trying to hunt Jane down and saying, please forgive me. Yeah. Um, but good luck. Please let us know how this goes. Yeah. Um, and and I hope that you can let yourself feel at least like um, this can be the work of turning that guilt into something productive. Yes. Yes. Like it doesn't change what happened. Um, you might not immediately be met with, thank you for telling the truth. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's. I, I think it will help. I think it will turn this guilt into a productive sort of guilt rather than the kind of guilt where you just spiral and hate yourself. Yeah, I agree with that. It's That's good advice for all of us when we're dealing, when we're in this spiral of guilt or even just this spiral of despair around mm-hmm. things that we can't control, channeling that energy to something that's productive. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. So let us know how that goes. I'd love to hear from you. All right. This next letter, I think it's uh, your turn to read. All right. Stepkids. Dear Prudence, I left my wife of three years after she had an affair with our neighbor. She has a boy, 10, and a girl, 8, from a previous relationship. Their father is not in the picture and never paid support. I considered myself a pretty good stepdad at the time. I don't know what that means now. I don't want anything to do with their mom. Her answer to everything is to beg me to come back or blame me for her affair. I talked with the kids a few times, and my stepdaughter keeps asking me, when are you coming home, Daddy? I don't know what to tell her or even what to tell myself. I don't want to disappear out of their lives, but I don't have any control over that. The few times I tried to come over, their mom says, okay, then cancels on me. My lawyer says to leave it alone. Do you have any other choices here? Wow. Well, I like to acknowledge that this is a really tough situation, and I'm sorry that your um, your wife had an affair with the neighbor and put you and the family and the children in this predicament. Um, I uh, This is such a challenging one because when it comes to children and children of this age, they're not of the age where you can have a relationship with them outside of their mother. They're not on social media, for instance, or maybe have email where you can correspond with them in that way. Um, I, uh, I, as someone who comes from a family where I come from a single mom and like really yearned for a relationship with my father, um, I think that there are a couple of things that he could do. Um, and one of those things includes perhaps trying to write the children letters Mm. from time to time, um, calling when he can. And I agree with the lawyer, then stepping back, uh, because there's only so much that he can do at this space and this time in their lives. Yeah. I I think part of what's hard is, uh, if your lawyer says, you know, legally, there's not a lot you can do. Um, you know, I, I wish so much. You know, we could have heard from this person like a year ago and we could have encouraged, you know, if you want to be a good step parent to these children, you might want to talk about starting the process of adopting them. That's right. But um, since that didn't happen, so so I would just say to anybody who is acting as a step parent right now, especially if you're married to the biological parent of those kids, if adoption is an option, if that's something that you and your partner are open to, making that a priority just so you know your relationship with the kids that you're co-parenting is one that's protected by law. Mm-hmm. Um, will be good, good for point. you and the kids. But um, 
I, I'll assume that you generally trust your lawyer, that your lawyer gives you good advice, that you don't think it's worth trying to get a second opinion. Um, I would maybe, um, yeah, in, in addition to trying to just let the kids know, I love you. I hope that you're doing well. I would love to see you sometime. Um, maybe waiting until your, uh, you know, soon to be ex-wife um, is uh, not kind of alternately berating you or begging you to come back to say, would you be open to ever meeting with a mediator? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I would love to see the kids. Um, I would love to be as involved as a co-parent um, as possible. If you were open to that, I-, I would be willing to meet you halfway in in any way possible and to try to um, emphasize to her, I want this for the kids' sake. I want to be there for them. I want to be supportive. I want them to have this. Um, if if her only response to that is to try to use it to either punish you or to try to get you to come back, I understand if you need to step back from that. But I think that that would be my next um, – that would be the next thing I would try before backing off entirely. I agree with you. And we don't have clarity on the space, the amount of time that this letter was written and the amount of space from the affair and the passion around the, all of that. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like um, – the wife is operating on that level of we're adults and we're talking about this affair and blaming you for the affair and like the relationship. So stepping back and talking about and centering the children yeah. might be a way to be able to bring us back to like, hey, look at these two innocent folks who are in the middle of all of this. Right. And sometimes space does allow for that when you have just a little bit of cooling off where then you can come back to the person and say, hey, let's mediate. But I agree with you about having a mediator. Yeah. That's so important. And if that doesn't happen, I always I also say it's very important, even though the children are eight and ten to um, make certain that they have an understanding of where you are. Um, Now, not saying that that, you know, legally it may not be a good thing, but like them being able to know that you're in the same city. They know your address or they know where you live. They have your phone number Mm -hmm. so that they know that you're accessible. And you um, it's not that you don't want to be with them, but at this time, you you and the mother are dealing with a difficult situation. Right. And that's hard, too, because you don't want the kids to be in a position where they're blaming their mom, even if she is acting really, really badly. Yeah. Because if your priority is the kids, that sometimes means swallowing really lousy behavior in order that they don't feel, like, drawn in the middle of it because they're yeah. 8 and 10. They I can't, know. They can't be trying to um, manage that uh, anxiety. So uh, I think too, then if, if, if the signals that you're getting is that there's no receptivity on her part and you think the only way that she would engage in this mediator idea is to try to get more leverage with you and that she would continue to cancel meetings. I think at that point, the best thing you can do is let the kids know how to reach you and to take a step back. Cause I think the worst thing for them is a lot of like, okay, kids, dad's coming over. Just kidding. No, he's not. Right. Cause that bit about the mom says, okay. And then cancels. That's right. That would just be so hard on them. Yep. And, and not that it's not hard for them to stop seeing you either, but I don't want that for them, for them to think this Saturday we're going to get to see our, you know, the only dad we've ever basically known. Yep. Um, and then find out it's not going to happen. That's just, you know, my heart just breaks to imagine them thinking that. So I'm so sorry. That's a really difficult position. Um, and, and I think the best way to try to approach this is just have a separate friend or a counselor that you can vent about the ways in which just like as a as an ex, your your ex-wife is treating you really, really badly so that when you try to negotiate with her for some access to the kids, you can be just really neutral, take the high road whenever possible, not engage when she tries to bait you into arguing about whose fault the affair was. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that's hard to do. Yeah. Um, and and I I wish so much that you had more options legally than you do. Um, but but it's such a good advice that stepping into this for all of those who are step parents, like really taking a look at what your legal rights are, and also looking at adoption mm-hmm. and making certain all those things are in place beyond if you all separate. Like it's just a really it could be a good practice to right. say, like, for the benefit of the children, if anything happened to right. us. Right. Like if, if the, you know, uh, parent with the biological relationship died suddenly in That's a car right. accident, mm-hmm. would I have any ability to take care of the kids or would some other family members have, have rights that, that I would want? Yeah. And I know not everybody is in a place either like financially or, or otherwise where they can make that happen tomorrow. So I don't want to put too much of that burden. But I do think... If you have taken on a role of step parenting mm-hmm. for kids, it's really good to think about how can I make sure that this relationship is protected. That's right. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. So, uh, moving from big, big problems to smaller problems. (laughs) Yeah. uh, The subject is just wearing a bra. Surprisingly, I have very strong feelings about this one. (laughs) I also do. I imagine we might be of the same mind on this one. Let's see. Uh, Let's find out. So the subject is wearing a bra. Dear Prudence, my husband doesn't understand why I don't care if I'm not wearing a bra at home if we have a guest over. Our guests are usually the same handful of people who are good friends of both of us. When they are over and I get home from work, I want to change into my pajamas. And of course, when I'm in my pajamas, I don't wear a bra. I'm completely covered up. It's not obscene in any way. My clothes are not at all revealing. I keep telling my husband that it's his problem, not mine. Bras are not required clothing. Society forces women to wear them. But if I had my way, I would never wear one. I do during the day when I go out and at work just to keep up with societal norms. But in my own home, I see no need. He makes gestures or comments every time I don't wear one when we have company over. Am I wrong here? Shouldn't I be able to be comfortable in my home? What kind of gestures is he making? I just want to know. Like, you know what? I'm just wondering, like, are they like sitting by a fire with wine? And he's like, what is what is that? Just doing a big bouncing yeah. motion. That's immediately what I picture. That's immediately what I picture, too. I don't think there's a subtle gesture to communicate to someone I want you to put a bra on. No, no. And like the friends have to be aware of it if he's saying it out loud. So I agree with her in that, like, I hate wearing a bra, too. The moment I get home, I go home and change. I hated wearing a bra so much I had top surgery. (laughs) There you go, right? Which I don't recommend as a solution (laughs) to your problems, letter writer. Right. Um, But there were some questions that I have that, of course, we won't get the answers for. But um, I wondered, 
Like a couple of things. I agree when you're in when you're at home, you should feel comfortable. You shouldn't feel like you have to wear a bra. But I wondered if the husband is picking up on social cues with the friends that then he is feeling that awareness and he's trying to let his wife know for the sake of our friends who are there, I want you to wear a bra. That is possible. I, I you know, I'm trying to imagine like whenever I visit my friends and like most of my friends are also like, I love jammies and I've never been around friends when we're relaxing at one of our houses where I thought like, oh, no, I think they're not wearing a bra and that's really upsetting to me. Yeah. So it's a little hard for me to imagine that the husband is just like super intuitive and has been getting feedback from the friends and is trying to. I feel like the husband would have said so at this point. That's true. But it's possible. So I guess I would start by saying like, I want to know where this discomfort is coming from. Yeah. Can you like have any of our friends said to you, I'm uncomfortable and have for some reason asked you to say something to me? Or or is, is he... this just your discomfort that you and I need to talk about? Exactly. Is it is it the discomfort that he's feeling? Is does he perceive that their friends may be like looking at her breasts, for instance? Like those are the types of things that I don't know. Per- but no matter what, I think they need to be having a discussion about it. And I actually feel like they can come to a happy medium. I do feel like if my husband is always uncomfortable by something, I don't want him to feel uncomfortable. I'd also don't want my friends to feel uncomfortable, but I want to feel comfortable too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I said when I go home, I like take off my bra right mm-hmm. away. But we have neighbors who sometimes ring the doorbell and want to come over or want us to all go in the back to play and stuff. And I have like my little bralettes, like, you know, those like really cotton things that don't really hold up anything, but I like throw it but on. But they like minimize jostling. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm well endowed. So I'm saying if I'm like in a room with people, they're going to be aware. It's a difference between me and somebody else without a bra, you know? And I definitely like back in the day, I was mediumly endowed. And like I would sometimes have like my sweater that I would wear in lieu of a bra, which is like, all right, I will put a sweatshirt on. Yeah. That like, again, minimizes jostling, um, but is not as uncomfortable as a bra. So certainly those are options. But I also do think. Um, at a certain point, it will be good to like say, I hear that you are uncomfortable, given that I don't think our friends share that discomfort uh, and wearing a bra all day is really uncomfortable. And it is mm-hmm. like I-, I want you to um, let this one. I want you to stop making these gestures. Yeah, I want you to understand that I have heard you. I disagree since the bra would be on my body Mm -hmm. and I would be uncomfortable with it. I'm going to, you know, pull rank here um, as as the owner of the the Of the body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, that's that's just going to be how it is. Again, like. It's hella disrespectful, too, if he's doing the gestures and making comments. I feel like that's way more noticeable. Yeah, exactly. When you're among now, your friends notice that. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like when you're casually relaxing with friends at home and you're like, again, it's not like you're walking around shirtless and like really violating social norms. I just think there's a certain understanding that when you are relaxing with your friends, it's not um, uncomfortable or sexual to like not be wearing the sort of professional undergarments you wear for a business meeting. Yeah, yeah. So 
Yeah, I think there's a little room to to work with your husband. But if ultimately it's just that he's like, I don't want people to know that you have breasts. I want that to be a secret. <laughs> Trust me, they know. Or that like, I want them to think of your breasts as totally stationary or like frozen in stasis unless we're having like that to me. Suggests, yeah, you got to get over that, dude. Yeah, yes. the discomfort is yeah. his and he can, he yeah. can let go of that. Right. One. Um, it might help. It, 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 in the spirit of um, trying to understand where your partner is coming from, if he would ever like to wear uh, an underwire bra around the house just for an evening, just to get a feel for like how it starts to dig into the flesh after a couple of hours, that might be an interesting experiment. Love it, Danny. That's such a good idea. <laughs> Force femming your husband <laughs> for uh, the purpose of uh, not making creepy gestures. It's, I'm, I realize I'm going in depth into a lot of different things. He may not want to do that. That might not be the solution to your problem. But um, No, I love it. I love that idea. I think sometimes like men who have never worn a bra think like, oh, it's just like nothing. It's... It's just another item of clothing, and it's like, they're really, even the most comfortable ones. They still have a little something going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I, I actually think, see if he'll do that. If he's a, if he's that kind of guy who will do it, I think it would be cool for him to take that moment. Right. And maybe not when you're having the first conversation and it's like kind of still argumentative. Maybe it's just like an opportunity of like, do you want to see what I'm talking about? So you have a sense of like what it feels like. Yeah. That reminds me of those. Remember those little um, they put these devices on men's uh, abs to like they so they would know what cramps were like just so they could see like what menstrual cramps were like. I did not know. I did not know. <laughs> there were all these videos going around online and like, you know, men were like, oh, I will never from this point on talk about like what's PMS and why it hurts and all of that stuff. Like just taking a moment in a woman's shoes will yeah. give you a clue. I tell you what, I, I, I sure don't enjoy cramps as a man any more than I did as a woman. That's right. They are unpleasant and yeah. I don't care for them. That's right. I think we've helped this person as much yes. as we possibly can. All right. So this next question is so broad that I think it's going to be slightly challenging to figure out exactly how to advise this person. But I think we can maybe give them some guiding principles. Let's try Let's it. Let's give it a shot. Okay. Yeah. So the question, the subject is, when to ask? Dear Prudence, as a longtime reader, I've seen you give advice about how to ask questions of marginalized people. I am a white cis woman, and I want to do right by others. Sometimes the advice is, ask the person involved. For instance, if you are afraid that your relatives will misgender your friend that they only see once a year, you can ask that trans friend about their preference. Then, at other times, the advice is not to ask the person. For instance, don't ask your colleague, a person of color, on how you can be an ally because people of color shouldn't be responsible for explaining things to white people constantly. So I'm curious if there is a general guideline for when to ask or not. I'm generally curious about hearing other people's opinions, and I err on asking people directly rather than making assumptions. But I also don't want to be annoying. Yeah. Well, I feel like... This person's um, example, so um, not wanting to misgender a person mm -hmm. versus asking a person of color how to be an ally, those are two different things. Super different. They're super different. And I mean, you're talking about a huge question. I'm thinking of a white person who comes to me and says how to be an ally. I mean, like, well, you know, like, where am I supposed to go with that? Like, I need to take out, like, Encyclopedia Britannica, like, sit on the... Where do we start? Right. You know, like, that's a huge burden on a person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is something that I say about this type of question. 
Mm-hmm. I think it re- the answers reveal themselves the more people of color you know mm. and know outside of just work, eight hour a day. The more you know people who are different than you, the more and the cl- the clearer your answers will come to you, mm-hmm. and the clearer you'll you'll understand how you can be an ally, and those won't be questions, big questions you'll be asking people. Right. That I I think that's. A big part of it is like um, there's this sense of I have absolutely no clue, which uh, makes me wonder kind of like, do you have many relationships with people that you want to like, quote unquote, be an ally towards? What's your goal there? Is it like I have a particular friend in a particular situation who I want to be supportive of? Or is it more I want to make sure I'm always doing the right thing Mm -hmm. so that I don't get either – no one either considers me annoying, but I also don't miss any big thing. Um, and so I'll just say to that, um, yeah, I, I think what you said was an excellent point. Read the room. Yeah. Um, consider whether or not that person has any information that you don't. Mm. Um, consider whether or not there is something that you are immediately being asked to do. Um, so like in the instance of, you know, I, I, I there was a particular letter that person was referencing, which was like, I'm getting married. A member of the wedding party is trans and non-binary. And I'm not sure whether or not I should mention anything to my family because I know that if I don't, they will misgender this person. Mm. So that was like that will directly affect your friend. Yep. Um, it's your wedding. So you have kind of a stake in that's right. Dictating behavior. That was a really clear cut example of you have the ability to make choices that can help somebody um, how they want you to handle it will necessarily um, affect who you talk to and who you don't. Whereas um, like asking a colleague how to be an ally about issues of like racism is like uh, that's kind of clearly outside of your purview as as a coworker. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And what you're talking about here is like it's about it is about power and burden. So like who is doing the work in that question? Mm-hmm. Um, and the question of like how to be an ally, it it often is thought of as like I am trying to get answers so that I can be a better person. But in the end, what's happening is the person that you're asking is like it's the burden of them having to educate you. Mm-hmm. Um, so having to read the room and having an understanding of like – just getting to know maybe the person you want to be an ally for will give you a lens into how you can be an ally for that person. Right. Right. And I think another good point is um, this question of like, is this information that I could get that doesn't require someone to stop what they're doing and inform me? Yeah. Uh, Like, so in the instance of the trans friend, like you couldn't go read a book that says all trans non-binary people want to be treated at weddings in the following way. Right. But if you just wanted to know generally what are some things I as a white person can do to, you know, fight racism or be an ally to people of color. There's a lot of resources out there. Yep. You could Google that phrase. There are a lot of books um, on that very, very subject. Yep. Um, there are organizations that are sort of geared towards helping white people collectively figure out ways to combat white supremacy in our own communities and also to be useful. So there, I think one of the things you can ask yourself is, is this information available to me through some other means? Mm-hmm. And if it is, you can try that first. That's right. That's right. Yeah, try to do the work first before uh, asking people. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if the goal is I never want to make the wrong move and I never want to annoy someone else, I'm not sure that I can't promise you that I know a way not to do that. Mm-hmm. But if you err on the side of um, getting to know somebody, 
getting a sense of what their preferences are as an individual, um, figuring out, you know, what are you bringing to this friendship rather than just like, hey, can you help me figure out how to cross off my ally checklist? Right. Like, I imagine these people would also want to feel like you enjoy spending time with them. That's right. Right. Like if it's if it's like, oh, you just want to be my friend so that you can like have a friend of like the following identity checklist. Yeah. And what is friend? I mean, I just again, I go back to when you know people, it becomes easier. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, these it will all be revealed to you, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think that's a really good point. You don't have to figure out how to ask those things when you have a real relationship with somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because in again, that's not to say if you have a good friendship with someone, they'll automatically guess what you're worried about and they'll tell you everything. But like you will not have to puzzle out. Like if if the reason you're spending so much time, how do I find this out from somebody is like they probably don't want to tell you because they don't think of you as that close. close. Right. You're not that person. Yeah. Absolutely. So one thing that you can do often is respect somebody else's boundaries. Yeah. And if you get the feel that, for example, like a coworker of yours is not interested in having big conversations about how you could be a better ally, take those cues. Yeah. You know, I actually had um I experienced this exact thing a few years ago. I was at a conference, a journalism conference, and um, there was a woman. I had done this whole, uh, I had done some research on implicit bias. And so I was presenting this research. And afterwards, this woman came to me and said, I just want to be a better ally to people of color. And how can I be that? And we had like a general conversation, but it was a nice conversation. But she followed me throughout the whole conference. Mm. And so then by the third day, I was sort of avoiding her because, like, if you want to share a meal with me, if you want us to, like, you know, just chat and get to know each other, and then through that we have, like, um, authentic conversation about issues and things, and we can sort of start to talk through that kind of stuff, that's different than, like, just chasing someone down and asking them that question. Right. And I think I'm so... (laughs) That's such a useful anecdote because I think that illustrates the difference between I want to know how to be an ally. Once I have that information, I'm going to start doing those things versus I have a general vague sense of white guilt. Yeah. And I don't right. like it. It was and I would dripping like you, all over her, her white yeah. guilt. Yeah. And I would like you to be my black friend. That's right. So that I don't have that white guilt anymore. Yeah. And that I think that's when you need to be really honest with yourself. If that's my fear right now, how can I tend to that? Mm-hmm. And not ask that a person of color, especially a black person, uh, be responsible for my white guilt. Yes. Because that's just something you're going to have to find ways to tend to in yourself. That's right. Can't ask that of somebody else. Yeah. I had a question like that uh, on, on a recent episode where this woman was like afraid of talking to a, a racist kind of friend, mostly like fellow PTA mom. And one of her thoughts was like, can I just wear like a Black Lives Matter shirt Uh. or like maybe like invite another black friend around to talk to her about it? And it's just like, no, 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 you can't. No. Or you shouldn't. And, you know, there's, you know, the best way to fight racism really today, like I always, I always say like, you know, um, and a lot of people say this, like black and brown people, we have done a lot. We have taught people a lot. At this point, breaking down racism and systemic racism is white people talking to other white people and them breaking this down together. Yeah. So, you know, I'll just throw out like a couple of quick uh, resources that you can check out. I'm not uh, suggesting that these are going to be immediately anything that changes your life forever. But like um, 
you know, Sojourners has a whole series of resources about white people desiring to be allies. Um, if you Google how to be a white ally, um, you know, racial equity tools comes up. Mm-hmm. The white ally toolkit comes up. Again, there's not going to be universal agreement on the best thing to do in every situation. Um, but there is a ton of information out there that has been written by people who have given a lot of thought to it. So there there are some answers to some of your questions. And as you seek them out, um, you will feel, I think, like you have a stronger sense of how to behave and how not to behave. Got resources. Yeah. Keep us posted. Write back. Let us know if you, like, pick up a book um, or if you spend a little time uh, finding local organizations. What do you learn? Um, how do you feel? Is that useful to you? Um, do you have more specific uh, situations that you were thinking of but uh, couldn't come up with at the time that you were writing to us? I would love to hear a little bit more about what that uh, – I'm so sorry I'm going to say the word journey. Uh, <laughs> journey looks like for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a journey. It is a journey. Um, all right. So – I. Moving from big, open-ended problems to very specific problems yet again. Oh, boy. Uh, it's I love it. I love shifting from like, I oh, like it too. how do I deal with this idea to like, this one guy keeps eating my cupcakes. Right. So I think this one's me, right? Or did I read the last one? I think you did read the last one. Then you get to read about the food thief. All right. I'm so excited for you. All right. Food thief. Dear Prudence, I am a team lead in a small local company. For morale, I will bring in food on Fridays for my team if we meet our goals. I do this out of my own pocket. This worked well until the food thief, Larry, came in. Larry is a senior manager in another department, but whose office is near ours. As soon as I bring the food out, Larry tries to get some. I told him to stop, and this is for my team. Larry tries to make a joke about all of us being on the same team. He finds it funny to yell food suggestions at me or tell me what restaurants he likes. I am 21 and only been in the company for a year while Larry has been here 10. I try locking the food at my desk, only to bring it and turn my back for five minutes to find Larry cramming a second cupcake in his mouth, spilling crumbs over my keyboard. I lost my temper and I asked him what the hell was he doing and he tried to play it off as if he had no clue the cupcakes weren't for him. They had pink ones to celebrate one of my team's pregnancy. HR is off-site and generally useless. My supervisor is not friendly. I like this job and love my team. I didn't mind Larry until this all happened. I don't know what to do. Larry makes $10,000 a year more than me. I don't understand why he is stealing food out of the mouths of my team. <laughs> Larry is not spending any any of his time worrying about whether or not he could be a better ally to anybody. No, he is. Larry isn't. is worrying about Larry. I know. It sounds like it's out of a sitcom or something, like out of the office. Larry's like walking by, grabbing food. Yeah, Larry is the worst. You can't trust Larry. Oh, food in offices is such a weird thing. Mm-hmm. I People have stories about this. You know, it is like everyone has a story. Yeah. So my my thought here is purely how can you uh, make sure that your team gets the rewards you want to get them and to minimize the amount of time you have to spend managing Larry. Because my belief is that you could dedicate easily half of your work day every day to stopping Larry, and he will find a way around it. Mm. Like, so I, finding other ways to reward your team besides food, essentially. Exactly. Like, whether that's giving them gift certificates, whether that's occasionally taking them out to a meal, mm-hmm. where, like, presumably Larry would stop. I, he sounds more opportunistic than, like, truly, truly evil. So I don't think he would follow you out to a restaurant and then try to get in on the bill. 
Yeah. Um, I, but yeah, I, I think that's going to be just the easiest way for you not to waste time every day trying to like play Frogger with Larry and food. Where yeah. You're like trying to hide things from him. Right. And if money is the issue, I do think like a team might really appreciate maybe it's not every Friday having food, but it's once a, once a month you guys go out to someplace special or yeah, gift certificates, those kind of things. It also wasn't clear to me through this letter if he had specifically said to and intentionally said to Larry, hey, Larry, I buy this food out of my own pocket. Like, Mm -hmm. I spend money out of my own pocket for this. If you'd like to chip in, I'll be collecting on Thursday night. And then, you know, of course you can have some on Friday. Yeah. I just, to me, I I think that's maybe worth trying. I would be so, I would go into that with the lowest of expectations. Yeah. yeah. Because, like, Larry (laughs) knows that you're 21. You've been at the company for a year. He's a manager. He's made jokes out of it before. Uh, He doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. Like, and and because you don't have um, backup from either your supervisor or from HR, I just my solution, if this were me, would just be I'm going to remove the problem from Larry. Yeah. Larry will no longer have to worry about this. Yeah. And if Larry says anything to me, I'll just say something like, oh, we stopped doing that. Got to go. Yeah. 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 I, I would give Larry as little as possible to work with. I like. Yeah, I like it. It makes it easier because he, this person does not need to have the burden of thinking about this. Like this is supposed to be a reward for his team, mm-hmm. which is also a reward for him. He feels good doing something for the team. I actually I, I'm curious, too. I, my my read on this was that the letter writer is a young woman. Mm. But maybe that's just because of like the optics of like. I'm taking your cupcakes. I'm drinking your milkshake. I actually don't know the gender of the letter. You're right. I gendered by saying he, but you're right. This person, I mean, this person, no matter what, they feel young in the company. Mm -hmm. And they feel that Larry has some sort of additional power through his time and how much he makes a year. Yeah. I I would just say, like, if you've already tried locking the food away at your desk and Larry goes through your desk and pretends like, oh, is this not my desk? I don't think Larry is going to respond reasonably to, Larry, I've been paying for this out of my pocket. Can you please stop or contribute? My guess is Larry would say something like, my wallet exploded or uh, the last team lead used to let me do this all the time or you're not a team player or some other nonsense. And yeah. so I would just say um, take the burden off and just. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like I wish you didn't have to do that, but I just think that's going to make life easier. And that's my main goal is for you to deal with Larry less. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Take, and your, your team will love going out of the building. Exactly. That'll be nice. Or having something that they can enjoy individually. Or yeah. if occasionally, like, you know, if a coworker, uh, if somebody on your team, like, is pregnant or celebrating a big milestone and you want to bring them a little food item just individually, just stop mm. by their desk and say, like, hey, this is for you. Um, but doing it one-on-one rather than collectively – I hope Larry would be less likely to go over to a pregnant colleague's desk and say, oh, is this your pregnancy cupcake? Can I have it? Right. But I kind of wouldn't put anything past Larry, Larry. Don't put anything past Larry, Ben. Yeah. I don't advise you to poison food. No. Oh, That's my god, That's not my advice. No. Sometimes I get advice from people who fear rightly that their colleagues are doing something along those lines. Um And so I mostly just wanted to reference it. Really? Like, yeah, if someone's eating their lunch out of, like, the refrigerator or something like that, like, no. No. No, it's never a good idea to poison. No. Yeah. I just, (laughs) generally, my advice to all of my listeners is no matter what the situation, don't poison anybody. Yeah, don't go to those extremes. Yeah. Um, But I do hope that Larry, um, I don't know, gets a serious root canal 
problem from all the cupcakes he's been stealing. I, yeah. I hope he has some sort of comeuppance. But yeah, just give him nothing to work with. Right. Oh, this next Ooh, letter writer. Danny. Oh, Danny. <laughs> oh, I feel so strongly about this one, too. I believe that this letter writer is in the wrong. Me too. In a, we have to read it first, though. You're right. I'm sorry. That's a spoiler. <laughs> Everyone forget that you heard that. Listen with an open mind. Maybe I love this letter writer. Yes. I don't. I mean, I you know, in the sense that they're a human being who's good, I actively <laughs> wish for. Yeah. The subject is, sister won't rescue her dogs. Dear Prudence, I've spent my career working in an animal shelter and recently took over as an assistant director of one of the shelter's rescue partners. All of my pets are rescues, and I believe we should always adopt, never shop. My sister and her husband recently got into labs. I think the dog, not like getting into laboratories. Laboratory retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they bought from a breeder who is just creating cute puppies that take homes away from dogs in need. They have two of them that they take to dog shows, and they compete in barn hunting and dock diving. I don't know what that is. Me either. I assume it's not actually hunting barns. She likes to talk about all their titles and championships, and I'm sick of it. I finally exploded and told her that she had no excuse for not rescuing because there are plenty of labs in need, and they could have made the right choice instead of lining a breeder's pockets. Rescues can do all the things she likes to do with her dogs, and there's never a reason not to adopt. My sister hasn't spoken to me since. My mom is on my side, but she hasn't been able to talk sense into my sister either. How can I make my sister see reason and understand that the best way to add a pet to your family is to rescue? Mm. I got to say, my friend, you are not making a great case for like if 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 this is what I know the rescue lifestyle looks like, I would not want to be a part of it either. I know. And I realize, you know, sometimes good things are good regardless of whether or not somebody is individually a good ambassador for it, but this is to me, this just seems like such a case of like you are so laser focused on your particular issue that you are unable to see the many, many ways in which we all make a number of choices that are not about maximizing the highest good yeah. um, and that it is actively damaging your relationship with a human being. Yep, And that's not good. Yeah. So, yes, I would say this is your cause. And you have no control over the people in your lives and the choices that they make. I agree with you. I think we should rescue dogs. There are many animals out there that we can rescue versus buying. But that is not your decision for your sister. And I kind of question, I wonder if, like, there's something else going on with your relationship that she knows how passionate you are about this. And despite that, she went and bought two dogs. But number one, also number two, um, it's really bothersome to me that you have brought your mother into this because your mother loves both of you and you cannot like have her on different sides of this this issue right here. So I think you need to step away and you need to let your sister live her life and be a part of these dog shows. And you have what you're doing. Now, I can understand. I can only imagine if something is your life's work and you have been working to get folks in the community, in the world, to adopt dogs, and then someone in your family goes and does something that's the complete opposite of what your mission is, that's got to hurt. So I want to acknowledge you probably feel hurt. You feel that, like, she has kind of betrayed you. and But but ultimately, this is your cause, and you, you don't have control over your sister. Yeah, I think at this point, you need to say, I have communicated 
in as many ways as possible and as often as possible that I think rescuing dogs is better than buying them from a breeder. At this point, I am not giving my sister any new information. Mm-hmm. All I'm doing is driving her away. Yep. Um, and, and again, that's not to say that rescuing dogs isn't a good thing. But like if we wanted to just break this down into doing like the maximum good, you know, I, I'm sure it could be argued that like keeping an animal as a pet, even a rescue, when you factor in all the animals that have to die to feed a dog. Mm, um, that in itself. Like the highest good, in fact, would be to euthanize all pets. Oh. And to Woo! stop killing other animals to feed the animals that we find the cuddliest. And I like... If we're going to go there. Yeah. Right. And again, yes. I don't say that in terms of like, if you can't do the highest good, it's never a good idea to try at all. I'm just saying the way that you are treating rescuing dogs as the absolute highest good mm-hmm. um, is not, in fact, reality, especially if especially if like you're like, we need to treat these animals perfectly, but let's eat other animals mm-hmm. ourselves. Like, you know, you are stepping into um, a, a way of looking at the world that's kind of about um, punishing people who don't share your exact specific priorities that's right. instead of saying, like, are there other ways in which I think my sister is actively a good person yeah. who, who who works to create a better world? Or are there other ways in which I could be directing my energies yep. that actually does help dogs rather than, like, yelling at her about the two dogs that she loves taking to barn shows? Like, in the long run, what your sister is doing is an expensive hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Would you say, because she says that, that, well, I'm sorry, this person says mm -hmm. that um, the sister is not speaking to them anymore. Yeah. Um, Would you advise them to take an action on that or just stop talking about it? You know, my desire for this letter writer is to let go of the goal of I want to make my sister see my perspective because I believe that's the only reasonable way to look at this. Um, And I need that I need her to either like promise to never purchase a dog again um, or to, uh, you know, hang her head in shame for the remainder of these dogs' lives that they came from a breeder. Um, I would urge you, letter writer, to find other ways to deal with this desire to control your sister Yeah, and to say, if I can't trust myself to let this go, I need to respect her decision not to talk to me. That's right. And then um, I think in the long run, it will be good for you to think about what are ways in which if somebody has feels like the only way for me to see a boundary is for them to cut me out of their life. How can I um, how can I change my message? How can I um, communicate a thought I have once and then let it go? Um, Or just say, like, I've given you all the information that I can. This is the thing I feel really strongly about. The decision is yours, and I have to respect that. Um, So I I think if you try to push this now, if you try to use your mom to get at your sister, um, all you're going to do is drive your sister further and further away. And and that won't further your goal of getting more animals rescued. um, And it won't further your goal of having any kind of a relationship with your sister, which actually, you know, frankly, you don't. At no point in your letter do you say, I miss my sister or I want to have a relationship with her. So if you don't, maybe be honest about that. That's right. And say, I don't really care about my sister. I just care about rescuing dogs. Um, And if you do care about your sister, perhaps it is taking a moment to think about that. That this is the person that you grew up with, that you love. That ultimately, do you want this to be the thing that breaks you all apart? Mm -hmm. That you have a cause that she doesn't believe in? Like family, I mean, family and connection and love with people, like, is really important. It's like what it's all about. So step away from this for a moment and acknowledge that. Yeah. 
I, you know, I just like, and again, like I get it. I, I love animals. I lost my dog earlier this year. Mm. I, I got him through, you know, friends of friends who were no longer able to care for him. Um, I, I, I loved him. I miss him. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think it's important um, to just acknowledge that you cannot make everyone around you do all the things that you want, that there are some hills that I think are not worth dying on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it, if I were to step back and say, like, re- you know, remove the comfort that I took from having a dog, like, when I think about, like, the environmental problems that we're facing right now, is it actually good that I, you know, you know, that so many animals died for me to feed that dog that brought me a lot of comfort? Like, yeah. again, not that that made me a monster or that I should have thrown him into a fire. I but loved that at dog. the bigger picture. But, like, yeah. don't, I, I, I don't think you can just say that, like, Breeders are bad, but pets are great. Keeping yeah. pets around uh, in the long term is going to be the way forward for us as like a planet that is approaching like massive extinction levels. Like it, it, it may be that pets are not going to be a big part of our collective future a- as a species. And that's going to be really hard um, for all of us to think about. And again, I'm not saying we all have to, you know, go. <laughs> you're going there, Danny. Our dogs but yeah. Of- but yes, you know, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. It, like, yes. W- 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 we're, we're talking like there's there's. There's in the news right now is like Absolutely. about a million species are facing extinction. extinction. Mm-hmm. And I know that, believe me, I get it. Like when I see a dog, I'm just like, dog, protect the dog. Yeah. But um, we have to expand the way that we think about preserving the uh, environment yeah. and caring for the planet our world. Mm-hmm. Um, than Absolutely. just rescue animals. So yeah. maybe spend the time you would otherwise spend haranguing your sister, um, thinking about different ways that you can get involved in the, you know, fight to like bring various corporations to accountability and try to make sure that this planet is livable for future dogs even if there's fewer dogs than we have now that's right i'm with you oh man it's a it's a worrying time to be around you know it is a what a time to be alive right yeah yeah Yeah. so our last letter i think um I'll read because I swapped it out at the last yeah, second. Yeah, we don't have, I don't have the snot. Letter. Listeners, you you have been reprieved from a kind of gross <laughs> question that I was able to answer in writing, which I'm grateful for because yeah. it would have been hard to read. But um, the subject line of our last letter is racist family reunion. Dear Prudence, my husband of the last seven years is white and very Southern, and I am not. Since we have been together, he has asked me to attend a large family function at the Neshoba, I think it's pronounced Neshoba, Mm -hmm. uh, County Fair in rural Mississippi. I have turned him down every year. He's always assured me that it would be fine, but he's been able to beg out each year due to scheduling conflicts. This year, we have no scheduling conflict. We could go for the entire week if we wanted. He wants to go very much. I've heard from other family members of his that it will be every bit as awful as I thought it would be. There's a lot of drinking. The exes all come out to start trouble, and all the racists in the family are in full party mode. There will hardly be any non-white people there at all. I know that my husband will not defend me if someone says something awful to me or our kids. He will just want us to walk away and do nothing. This whole thing sounds more terrible than anything I've ever done. His entirely white family keeps putting pressure on us to attend. How do I get out of this forever? The one thing that stood out to me, the main thing... Mm -hmm was my husband will not protect us. Mm-hmm. That is that is the issue. Yeah. That is the issue. Yeah. And she has to sit down with her husband and say, look, we have black children, or I'm sorry, I should say, he needs, this person needs to sit down with their husband and say, we have mixed children. 
We have non-white children. And we can't put them in this environment that I don't feel comfortable in, potentially not safe. And you have to back me up on that. And we have to be clear with our family on why we're not going to be there. When you make a choice to date or to marry a white person, your, your ethnicity, your race comes along with that. And you have to have discussions about this and where it will play out in different parts of your life. And this is one of those places. Yeah, that, that was exactly what leapt out to me, too. Um, and I'm so sorry, letter writer, that you know, and my guess is if you know this, it's because it's happened before. Um, that when people say racist things to you and your children, your husband's response is, don't worry about it. Let it go. And, and not only is that his response to it, but he wants to take you to a place that you know that that will happen again. Um, and, and he's like, let's go for a whole week. And you can just sign up for swallowing racist insults for a week. And I'll watch it happen to our kids and I'll do nothing. And that to me, again, you know, one thing at a time. But... I, I, I worry for you. I hope that there are people in your life outside of your husband and his family that you can talk to who will um, not like doubt you or say you're inventing problems where they don't exist or you need to just get over it. Like, I hope you have that support somewhere because I want you to have that. Um, but for you to say, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to put our kids in that situation. I want you to back me up. I want you to stand with me in that. If you don't, um, then that's going to be a big source of conflict for our relationship going forward because I'm never going to be white. Yeah. And this is going to keep coming up. Um, this is a this is um, this is an issue to I mean, I I advocate for therapy no matter what. But this is one where a therapist would come into play where now you all need to have you have children in the world. You are not just impacted by this. Your children are impacted by this. And he needs to get it. He needs to know. I mean, he needs to he needed to get it just having you as a as a spouse. But now he needs to get it having children. And part of that means unpacking this and having a deep understanding of how these types of situations impact you and your children. And he needs to stand up and say to his family, no, I'm not going to subject my family to this. Yeah. Um, and so if you were to see a, a therapist or a counselor over this, um, I think it would be important to find one who um, particularly helps families deal with racism and white supremacy. Yes. Rather than letting your husband find a sort of like therapist who shares his views and is sort of like, yeah, you should just deal with it because I don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I do worry that this is bigger than just a week and that this um, this will come up again. Um, and that if your husband's response is just, I don't care, that doesn't fill me with hope for the future of, of your marriage. Yeah. And, you know, marriage is all about compromise and negotiation. <laughs> and a big part of that is letting go of the things that you might have loved and you thought were fun. And maybe you even had in your mind that I'm going to introduce my family to this thing at one point. But when you then grow up and you get married and you realize perhaps this is not something your spouse wants to be involved in or you're seeing it from a different lens. OK, so you were in this lens of, as a white person attending this white thing and you didn't really see how racist it was. And now you're an adult and you see it. You have to change your scope and you have to change like your expectations. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to say, like, you have to leave your husband tomorrow because clearly right now what's on your mind is just how do I get out of this vacation? Yeah. Um, and 
that's a big question to start asking yourself of is, um, do I trust this man? Do I trust this man to be there for me and to support me when it really matters? Yeah. Um, but just know that like you don't need um, you do not need his permission to not go. And if ultimately he says, I think you're being unreasonable and you don't have a good reason not to go. Um, what I want for you is to just be able to say, I am not going. Yeah. Um, I want your support. If I don't have it, I will have to make different decisions. But um, I'm not going to go. And that's just a hard line that you get to stick to no matter what. Uh, I mean, even if, even if you just knew that his family members had a history of getting racist when they got drunk. That would be sufficient That's reason enough. to not want to go. But yeah. given that there's also this history uh, around this particular fair with um, like racist dog whistles, um, I, I, you know, again, that just I really, really worry about you and your kids and your safety and um, just what kind of parent he could be to mixed race kids. Mm. Um, if 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 his kind of general like the lesson that he wants to impart to them about his thoughts about racism and white supremacy is don't worry about it. And see, I feel very strongly like it's a different thing when you're um, an interracial couple and say the white person is not all the way there in trying to and having a deeper understanding of the complexities of what it means to be in an interracial relationship. But when you have children, you got to get there. You have to get there. You got to mm-hmm. do the work to get there. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a it's not a case of like at this point throwing up your hands. It's a case of like, all right, it's now time to stand up and like do the work. For the sake of our children. Yeah. So the good thing I think here is like uh, the, the the last question is how do I get out of this forever? Yeah. Which suggests that this letter writer is asking the right questions, mm-hmm. which is um, I need to get away from this. Not how do I convince myself it's okay and just try to like quietly break down afterwards by myself. But like how do I get away from this group of people that has made it really, really clear that their idea of a fun vacation is to put me around a lot of drunk racists and yeah. abandon me. Yeah. And that's the right question. You should be asking yourself how to get away from these people because these are not people who care about your safety and your well-being. Yeah. And I'm really, really sorry. I'm sorry too. Yeah. Um, it's especially hard when you have kids together. You married him. You presumably you love him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always hard, I think, to see the moment when you go from thinking, this is my partner and this is a blind spot of theirs, to, oh, this is the way in which my partner would choose white supremacy over me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really, really sorry. But I think you're right to not want to go. Um, and you just don't have to. That's right. Um, and it's okay for you to say, there's no scheduling conflict that matters. I'm not going. I'm not going and yeah. I'm not taking our kids there. Yeah. yeah. And I especially would love to hear back from you and and if you have other people in your life who are in your corner, because I want so much for you to have at least like one friend who's like, oh, my God, of course you're not going. Like, I will hang out with you and the kids like I will. We will plan a fun day trip. And it sounds like perhaps there are family members who are aware or there are people in the who know about this particular event who say mm-hmm. it's just as bad as you think. So there are people in their lives who have been there recently who are part of this whole thing, yeah. correct? Yeah, it was a little unclear if it's like family members saying like, hey, a heads up, it is as bad as you think, or if it was more like family members casually and positively mentioning racist incidents, yeah. and then the letter writer was like, I know how to put two and two together. Yep, yep. Um, I hope maybe there's one or two potential allies somewhere in this extended family. But um, if not, you know, you'll want to find those people in your own life. Mm-hmm. And you deserve that. You need that. Um, and I'm just sorry. And if your husband is listening, um, y- you got to turn your life and your heart around, man. Yeah. Um, 
these are just not choices that are going to lead to flourishing for your children or your spouse. Yeah. Um, and the first step is not going to this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are so many other vacations you can take. I know. So many other places mm-hmm. you can visit. Um, other places in Mississippi you can visit. You don't have to go to a racism convention. That's right. You can go to many, many other places in Mississippi that are not about celebrating racism. And being a part of the family, right? The family dynamics. Yeah, like that's that's important for the kids to be around family. Mississippi is one of my favorite places, by the way. It's a charming place. I have family down there. You can have a good experience down there. Yeah, but yeah. not at a racist thing. Yeah. Well, Tanya, thank you so much. That is every question. Danny, I can now check off one of my life goals. Being on Dear Prudence with you. Yeah, I'm such a fan. You did it. You did it. You're one step closer to just like total, total life. um, (laughs) Fulfillment. Yeah, Yeah. that's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming up all the way from the South Bay. Thank you for having me. And if you have not yet been to the 24-hour diner around the corner. from I have not. I've been there, but not to. I've not been to that diner. They have very good waffles. Or at least they did when I used to live there. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it's super good yeah thank you so so much please come back anytime and good luck with the launch of your show this week thank you so much i'm excited i'm excited too okay bye 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 thanks for listening to dear prudence our producer is phil circus our theme music was composed by robin hilton don't miss an episode of the show head to slate.com slash dear prudence to subscribe and remember you can always hear more prudence by joining slate plus Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. And on today's plus segment. Part of trusting a person and being in a monogamous relationship is trusting the person to be out into the world. Mm -hmm. There's no way that you can control a person. And by saying not having access to people who were exes is somehow controlling them, as you said, like a lack of opportunity or something like that. Like that is not the way to go into a healthy relationship moving forward. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.